This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good morning, everyone. You're listening to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My name is Kate Copsey, and I am the host of the show. You can contact me from my webpage, katecopsey.com, or through America's Web Radio Station site. The show today is sponsored by our friends at Bonnie Plants. Thank you to them. And this morning, we are going to talk with Jessica Walliser about pollinators and bugs. Good morning, Jessica. Good morning, Kate. Thanks so much for inviting me today. Oh, yes. And we always have a fun time when you're on the show. Um, but let's start with just a quick review about how you got to be an authority on bugs and pollinators. Well, it's interesting, Kate, because as you know, I am not an entomologist. I am a horticulturist. So um, I went to um, Penn State University for horticulture many moons ago and um, have been in the gardening industry pretty much my whole life since the time I was 15 years old. So it's you know, plants are all I've ever known. They're the only job I've ever had. And um, and I really kind of came to appreciate the insect world as a result of um, transitioning from chemical-based conventional gardening to organic gardening. And, and and anybody who's an organic gardener probably knows that one of the principles is, is of organic gardening is really relying on the good bugs to help bring balance to the garden and help mitigate some of the bad bugs or pest insects that are in the garden. And as I was tra- transitioning to um, organics, I really uh, started to recognize and I started to see that actually happening in the garden and learning about all that. And that really kind of made me um, realize that plants and insects go hand in hand and maybe I'd better start paying attention to not just the plants that live in my garden, but also the insects. And then in uh, 2008, I um, had the opportunity to write um, what then was my third book, but the first book on insects, which was called Good Bug, Bad Bug, and was really a field guide to identifying some of the more common pests and beneficial insect species that we find in our yards and gardens. And in researching that book, again, more light bulbs went off in my head saying, hey, all this is interconnected and I need to learn more. And it it opened up another avenue uh, of interest for me. And then um, this past year, um, actually this year, in January of 2014, um, I have a new book out with Timber Press now that is all about attracting beneficial insects to your garden and how to really create a landscape that promotes and protects them and and um, gives you a better way to get that balance between the bad bugs and the good bugs in the garden. So, and obviously we know that pollinators are one of the good bugs, are, uh, or one group of good bugs, although that is not what the book primarily focuses on. Um, we know that how valuable they are. And so learning about them kind of went hand in hand with learning about um, all of the other beneficial insect species in the garden. And, and I think the way, the way you approach it, you know, everything is so user friendly. Um, but uh, pollinators particularly, um, they're necessary to produce m- much of the summer crops, um, the vegetables, as well as fruit trees and things like that. But not all bugs are 
pollinators. So are there different, shall we say, degrees of pollination efficiency from the accidental where you brush past something uh, and sort of transfer it that way um, to very specific bugs that do a good job of things? Is it kind of a gradient scale? Uh, yeah, it definitely is. There are some insects that um, are more efficient pollinators than others, and, and not only does that depend on the actual pollinator, but it also depends on the species of plant itself. So, um, as you know, you know things like corn are are not insect pollinated at all; they're pollinated by the wind. And there's lots of other plant species that are that way as well. So, but as for the flowering plants that are that are pollinated by insects, there is no doubt that some uh, pollinators are more efficient pollinators. Uh, more efficient pollinators than others. It's a funny sentence, but it's true. So, so what I mean by that is, let's take for example the European honey honeybee, which was introduced here by the by the colonists and is not native, um, and and it requires a, a colony, a hive of about um, ten to twenty thousand adult honeybees to pollinate um, an acre or two of apple orchard. But which seems like, okay, well, that seems pretty good, right? That's a lot of bees. There's a lot of flowers and an acre of orchard. So, But then if we look at one of our native pollinators, which is the orchard mason bee, um, you only need about 70 female orchard mason bees to pollinate an acre of apple trees. Oh. And the reason being is they are far more efficient. They visit more flowers. Um, and they work on cloudy and rainy days, which many um, uh, European uh, honeybees will not. But some of our native pollinators are used to kind of more adverse conditions, and that makes them then more efficient pollinators. Um, they visit more flowers again. They, um, the depth that they reach into the flowers is different. How much pollen they can carry around is different. So there's lots of different factors that involve revolve around the efficiency of any particular pollinator. And if you look at, let's say, a beetle, for example, uh, like the Pennsylvania leatherwing, which is one of the soldier beetles, which we consider to be sort of a, a minor pollinator, uh, as they eat pollen and nectar off of a plant, they also carry pollen. But they don't have the little tiny fine hairs that many species of bees have on their bodies. And those little tiny fine hairs collect pollen and move them again from one flower to the other. So in the case of the beetles, maybe some pollen will stick to their leathery skin or the little spines on their legs, but it's not it's not evolved specifically to carry pollen from one flower to another, so it's not nearly as efficient. It gets the job done not as quickly and not as efficiently, and so we couldn't rely on all of the pollination being done by something like a beetle, but it does get a minor amount of pollination done. So there's no doubt that all of those different levels of pollination efficiency exist. And and are some of the plants maybe uh, host-specific, that only some pollinators are interested in one type of plant versus another? Maybe they, they like azaleas, but they won't touch the, the green beans. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely true. They have preferences, just like people. <laughs> you know, you might like, like Chinese food, and, you know, I might not. So they, we all have preferences in the food, and that's definitely true in the insect world. And so, for example, if we look at something like a bumblebee, um, you're not going to find probably a bumblebee, let's say, on um, the flower of a carrot or a dill, those little teeny tiny flowers that are tightly clustered together are very hard to access for a bumblebee. But you will find a bumblebee on on a bell-shaped flower, like um, they love the uh, flowers of the blueberry bushes in my yard, and and they the the um, blueberry flowers rely on the vibration of the large honeybee to really get a good pollen set. So they specialize. Um, pollinators and flowers specialize, and they they've co-evolved with each other to kind of have this relationship. 
Now, that being said, sometimes the pollinators will cheat, and they will bypass all of what evolution has developed. And, for example, do you grow Nicotiana or flowering tobacco in your garden, Kate? Oh, yes. It's beautiful. Yes. So they've got those long, deep, tubular flowers that are fragrance. uh, They release their fragrance at night, and they're typically pollinated by several different species of moths because the moths have that long kind of tongue proboscis that is, is rolled up against their body, and then they unroll it to get down into the, the deep tubular flowers because their pollen, or their nectar excuse me, is produced way at the bottom of that tubular flower. Well, the bumblebees have kind of figured out a way around that deep tubular flower. And if you watch your Nicotiana on a summer day, you will often see bumblebees cutting a slit at the very base of that tubular flower and cheating and going in and drinking just the nectar without performing the pollination because their anthers uh, and stigmas are held really high at the end of that tubular flower, the end that's exposed. So that when the when the uh, moth goes in, sticks the proboscis down the tube, the pollen ends up on its face, and so then it transfers it to the next flower. Well, the bumblebee will cheat and go straight down to the base of the flower, cut a little slit, and get that nectar and bypass that whole pollination mechanism. So they cheat. And and so the moth, when it gets there, doesn't get any pollen then, right? Well, it will get the pollen still on its face, but the nectar <laughs> supply might be a little diminished. But the thing about plants and, and flowers is that it's interesting because in a way they know and they know when their when their nectar has been lapped up by somebody and they know that they need to produce more because without that nectar they have no reward for a visiting pollinator so they are constantly as long as conditions are right they're constantly producing more nectar because their goal is to attract more pollinators to again pass on their genes to the next generation so it's really interesting and one of the things that I found so fascinating in writing my new book um, Attracting Beneficial Bugs to Your Garden was I actually have um, a part of one of the chapters is dedicated to nectar and what is in nectar and what comprises it and how it relates to um, what type of pollinator is attracted to a particular plant because there's lots of studies on the components of nectar and how they relate to what particular pollinator that plant would like to attract. And it's really, really a fascinating and emerging science and, and, um, and, and how a plant knows really essentially what to put in that nectar to attract a particular pollinator and it's really really cool stuff oh neat um well i know we've we've talked a lot um in the last couple of um shows about mixed planting like putting flowers in the tomato bed or under fruit trees and things that that to me would seem seem like that would attract maybe more pollinators in general and then they can sort out whichever plant or vegetable they want to to work with exactly exactly and that's that's kind of the goal in 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 diversity in any part of the garden is because when you have more diverse plant species you're offering up different bloom times you're offering up different floral architecture um, you're offering up different colors. You know, some pollinators are more attracted to one color than another. You're attracting different nectar, uh, or you're providing different nectar components, again, because one particular insect might be attracted to a particular kind of nectar. So the more diversity you have in the types of flowers that you offer in your garden, all of that results in a greater diversity of pollinators and, as a result, higher pollination rates. So, yes, even in your orchard where, let's say, the orchard mason bee, which we discussed a little bit earlier, is being a very efficient pollinator in the apple orchard. So even though that particular 
um, insect might not be attracted to all of the flowers that you are planting in your orchard. They will be attracted to some of them, and they will see it as a, a fitting and suitable home for them, and then they'll be more likely to, you know, make a nest somewhere nearby because they know that their progeny is going to have a food source as well. Yeah, and I think it makes everywhere just that little bit prettier as well. You oh, know, there's yes. no doubt. <laughs> yes, yes. And, you know, and, and I think, um, you know, I th- the pollination particularly, you know, after such a long winter, I think we'll probably talk about this in, in the next segment. But, uh, you know, when, when you've got such a di- diverse uh, arrangement of fla- flowers, you, you really don't want to balance too much on one side versus, um, you know, the tomatoes, which obviously need pollination. It kind of, it, it threw, I think traditionally people used to have the vegetable plot here, the flower garden there, the herb garden there, and nothing was together. And I think all that has been rethought about uh, in the last couple of years. Um, I, you know, it's kind of fun. But, you know, we need to take our first commercial break here, but we will be back talking more about pollination of your vegetables and flowers on America's homegrown veggies and we'll be back in just a moment. When gardening is part of your life, it brings so much. Healthy eating, the freshest, most local produce and playing in the dirt. At bonnieplants.com, you'll find all you need to succeed. When you grow bonnie veggie and herb plants in beds or containers, you'll know where your food comes from. Homegrown veggies and herbs ready for cooking, eating, and enjoying. And you did it. So get growing with Bonnie Plants. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Cheryl Linker, host of the Master Gardener Hour on America's Web Radio, Saturday morning at 11 o'clock. Join us as we keep things fun and interesting as we educate you in the world of master gardening. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes. The truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. Remember, you can catch up with us on Facebook at America's Homegrown Veggies. And if you miss any shows, you can find them on americaswebradio.com webpage. You can find them on iTunes and on Stitches. This morning, we are talking with Jessica Walliser about pollinators. And we did a brief introduction to the topic in the first segment. So let's turn to pollination of the early edibles like um, apple trees uh, and which are just starting to bloom. So, Jessica, what is around to pollinate apple trees, um, particularly when the apples and some of the fruits are very early um, to come out into, into flower? 
Yeah, well, and this is interesting, Kate, because there's there's actually a surprising amount of things blooming um, very early in the season. And what's interesting is that we gardeners tend to only think about um, the things that we plant, right? And we tend to think about things like our apple trees and, and our bulbs and some of the early blooming perennials, when in reality, there's lots of spring blooming weeds that uh, act as very important nectar sources for pollinators. And without all of those to help support these early emerging pollinators, we we lose pollination in our orchards and in our early crops in the garden. So one of the lessons with all of this is to let some of the early blooming weeds, you know, the henbits and the veronica and the chickweed and dandelions, let some of those be in your yard and garden because they will provide, they really fill in part of a gap in the early season um, with vegetables and fruits. And again, the more things you can have blooming in and around your yard, the better pollination rates you're going to get on those productive crops. So if we're looking at something like an apple tree, and I mentioned the orchard mason bee now a couple of times because they are such an important pollinator to apples and other um, uh, fruit trees and other plants as well. But there's lots of other, you know, things like uh, there's 4,000 species of native bees in North America, 4,000. That's a lot of different species of bees. And yet we're so hung up on this European honeybee, which is an introduced pollinator. It's not a native one. And and the native pollinators are suffering just as much from habitat loss, pesticide exposure, mites and parasites as the European honeybees are. We just don't notice them as much because many of them are very small. They're very nondescript. They don't live in colonies like honeybees do, so they don't give us honey. Instead, they nest in a hollow twig, um, or they'll they'll find a hole in um, in a in an old tree stem or something like that. So they're not they don't live in big colonies. They live all by themselves, and so it's harder to notice um, when they're missing. But we notice they're missing when we go out into the orchard and, and we look at the flowers and they're not uh, they're not buzzing with pollinators as they were um, you know ten or fifteen years ago. So the native the four thousand species of native bees in North America are suffering just as much as those European honeybees are, and many of them um, play a huge role as pollinators in our apple trees, especially backyard ones. You know the sad part about this really is if you look at like a commercial orchard. Um, which is conventionally maintained where they're probably spraying maybe eight to ten times a year. They're spraying some chemical, um, either an herbicide on the weeds or they're spraying a fungicide or a pesticide or a miticide <laughs> on the plants themselves. Yeah. They're actually um, doing a disservice to themselves by spraying so often because not only are they killing that pest, but they're also harming all of the pollinators. And then what do they do to make up that? The fact that, oh, my gosh, there's nobody here to pollinate my apples. They bring in colonies of honeybees where there's a huge industry around this where they will truck hives of honeybees across the country for whatever crop is in flower. So they will truck honeybees to Pennsylvania or Washington State to do the apples. Then they'll drive them down to Florida to pollinate the citrus crop. Then they'll drive them up to the Midwest to pollinate the, you know, the zucchinis. And, and they'll drive them, they'll truck them around the country instead of relying on 
um, the native pollinators that already exist in that particular region. Yeah. So that it's a sad fact that that happens, and that we the reason we need it to happen is we because we have done so much damage to the the populations of our native pollinators. So we need to somehow get that back. Yes, and uh, those poor little honeybees, you know, go, going right. from one place to the next. I well, mean, and what happens when you do that? You say poor little, but that's absolutely true, Kate, because you you think about you know they're being exposed to new pathogens, new viruses, new diseases. They're, they're different in Washington State than they are in Florida. So, you know, they're exposing, they're exposed to a whole lot more harm in that whole process and stress than they would be, you know, a backyard um, beekeeper who just has a beehive and it stays put. Yes. Uh, well, and I know that, the, you know, this past winter, has been a little disastrous for people. Has that affected the uh, the pollinators maybe coming out of uh, hibernation or, or the ones that naturally come north rather than are trucked north? Right. Well, it kind of depends on who you talk to. And, and the thing is, in, in my head, we don't know yet. And, and lots of that's what lots of um, folks in the entomological community are saying is that we don't know how it will affect the insect world yet. And it's something that's to be seen over the coming months. What I do have noticed in my um, yard and garden is that uh, the plants that are blooming are um, are swarmed with pollinators because there's so few floral resources available for them right now because everything seems to be delayed. So they are emerging, and they're 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 I don't want to say panicked, but they're looking, they're desperate for a food source. And so what is blooming um, is really swarmed with pollinators, which might make it look like there's a whole lot of pollinators out there, but that probably isn't the case. Instead, it's probably what is blooming is really having a lot of active um, pollination taking place. So, for example, I was out in eastern Pennsylvania um, over the Easter weekend um, to visit my parents, and they have a flowering ornamental cherry in their backyard. And my mother and I were standing nearby it, during the Easter egg hunt, and my mother was like, look at all the things flying around this cherry tree. Look, what are all those? And I said, those are all different little native bees, and they're very, very tiny. Um, and I think they were some type of sweat bee, but they wouldn't sit still long enough for me to look at them. But they were really, really flying on. And you could, you know, if you caught it at the right angle, you could just see a, a whole cloud of them over the plant. And oh, it wow. made me smile because there they all were doing their job of pollinating that cherry, but yet I knew that Normally, this time of year, they would be, um, you know, pollinating lots of other things, but there was very little else that was actually in flower. So um, it will be an interesting year to see how this harsh winter weather here in the east has affected um, all the pollinators and other insects in the garden as well. Yes, and I, I would imagine that things like the Bradford pears and the ornamental cherries, I mean, they're very pretty, but do they give as much nutrients? Um, because obviously the flower is an ornamental, it's not going to produce a fruit. So is, uh, does that mean that there aren't quite the nutrients in them? Um, in the nectar itself, you mean? Yes. Uh, that's a really good question, Kate, and I'm not sure I know the answer to that, and I'm not sure anybody has ever actually studied that. Um, to see. Yes, there is different um, quality of nectar because as I talked about in the first segment, they all comprise different things and they're not all, you know, if you would say to the average person, what's nectar? They're probably going to say, oh, it's um, a mixture of sugar and water. And that's the short answer because it's not just sugar and water. There's dozens of different components that are in nectar. You know, it can be amino acids and um, and it, there's different kinds of sugar. It can be sucrose or fructose or glucose and lots of other different types of sugar in there. So it's a huge 
concoction of different ingredients in that nectar. And some of them are, are really supportive of insects and some of them are really not. So whether or not that uh, Bradford pear or ornamental cherry is more nutritious to them or not, I don't know. At this time of the year, I'm not really sure they care. <laughs> I think they're just looking for whatever type of food source that they can find. Yes, and and of course, um, you know, with, with vegetation and things, um, so what type of, th- I, I know that bees tend to be, um, you know, once they hit on one particular flower, they, I'm, I'm told that they just sort of, if, if they're on a um, may, maybe the lilac, they will stay with the lilac and then go back to the the hive. Um, so what type of thing, I mean, if we put flowers in as well um, as the, the vegetables, um, is there a danger that they're going to come to the flowers and just ignore the vegetables because they're getting enough? Yeah, you know, and people say that all the time. They say, well, why would I want to put flowers in my vegetable garden? Because aren't the pollinators going to go there instead of go, you know, go to the, go to the vegetable crops? And that isn't the case. Um, what we find, again, is we increase that floral diversity and we increase the diversity of pollinators there. And the hope, the presence of them, they don't necessarily care whether they're pollinating a, um, you know, a bean flower or a, um, you know, morning glory. They, they don't really care as long as they're getting good quality nectar. So there's very low chance of that. That being said, there are some nectars that produce, which is interesting, but they will produce a little added extras for insects. So let's say, for example, nicotine or caffeine can be found in the nectar of certain plant species. And when that is found, the bee or the pollinator actually gets a little buzz from it. They get a (laughs) kick from it, and they will choose that plant. They will learn that, ooh, it feels really good when I drink this nectar. So that's the one that they will pick, and that's one of the reasons that the bumblebee has learned to go in that Nicotiana flower and cheat pollination and access that nectar through the bottom of the Nicotiana flower because there's nicotine in it and they know that they're going to get a nice little kick out of it and a nice little buzz and so they crave it and so they figured out a way to bypass the tubular flower by cutting in through the bottom. So there are certain plants um, that have evolved ways to lure in extra pollinators. There are ones that actually have um, components in the nectar that serve as um, uh, like a drowsiness. They make them drowsy, like an opiate or something in that nectar itself, and they make the pollinators loiter a little longer in the flower and around that plant. They make them sloppy, essentially, and that increases the flower's chances of pollination because the insect is more likely to loiter around that flower a little longer because it's getting a little sleepy drinking that nectar. So the science of nectar production is really, really amazing in what these plants can do and how they can manipulate pollinators to to be a certain way um, around those flowers. Oh, wow. I mean, they're, they're clever little things. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's amazing. Um, uh, so, so... I know, I know I've seen at least one butterfly. Um, is it, uh, is that a sign that maybe, um, there are others around that I'm just not noticing? I thought, I think I saw one flying thing. It might have been a, a little bee. Uh, but that's about all the activity I've seen apart from birds. Am I just missing them? They're, they're there. I just need to go and look, look for them. Yeah. And what's interesting is that some of the earlier species of butterflies that actually overwinter as adults, in the leaf litter, things like the morning cloak and the spring azures and some of the hair streaks that, that overwinter as adults, they, they're woodland species. So we often don't see them in the open exposed habitat of our gardens where we would see them as taking a walk through the woods. 
Um, yes. So, like, again, for example, I was out east this past weekend visiting my parents, and they've got a trail cut through their property, and we were walking through, and we probably saw about a half dozen spring azures, which are those little tiny blue butterflies we have here in the east, and they were flitting about um, in the in the woods, but they're not something that I would normally see in my yard because, they, again, they don't like that openness. Uh, they're oh. more exposed to predators and things in, in those yeah. type of conditions, so they live in the woods. Oh, well, I might, I might go and take a little look in, in our woods to see That's if we've got idea. some of those. Yep. Yes, yep. yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, we need to go and take another quick commercial break, but I want to remind everyone, you're listening to America's Homegrown Veggies, and when we come back, we'll be talking about pollination of the summer, uh, tomatoes and beans and all those important things with jessica wallisa we'll be back in just a moment when gardening is part of your life it brings so much healthy eating the freshest most local produce and playing in the dirt at bonnieplants.com you'll find all you need to succeed when you grow bonnie veggie and herb plants in beds or containers you'll know where your food comes from Homegrown veggies and herbs ready for cooking, eating, and enjoying. And you did it. So get growing with Bonnie Plants. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Quick Stakes. That's Q-U-I-K steaks are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick steaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick steaks, Q-U-I-K steaks, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. When gardening is part of your life, it brings so much. Healthy eating, the freshest, most local produce, and playing in the dirt. At BonniePlants.com, you'll find all you need to succeed. When you grow Bonnie veggie and herb plants in beds or containers, you'll know where your food comes from. Homegrown veggies and herbs ready for cooking, eating, and enjoying. And you did it. So get growing with Bonnie Plants. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. You're back listening to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I am the host of the show, Kate Copsey, and this morning we are talking with Jessica Wallace about pollination. And we talked about some of the early guys um, for the early season, so we're going to move on to the uh, summer ones. Um, And Jessica, most of the summer vegetables, as against the spring ones, are fruit rather than the leaves with the cabbages and things like that. So they need a pollinator to even get one single zucchini or tomato. So what type of um, pollinators are we trying to attract and are they different from the uh, spring ones or are we we talking the same type of uh, native bees and things? Well, we are still talking about native uh, native bees, and again, those 4,000 species in North America. And when you're talking about members of the squash family, there's one really important um, native pollinator for that family, and it's actually called the squash bee. 
And it's a, a larger lumbering bee species, and they're really cool to look at. And they're responsible um, on a commercial basis for about 70% of the pollination that takes place in commercial squash fields and zucchini fields. So um, they play a huge role in pollinating um, members of that family. And what's really interesting about them is that they are one of the species of native bees that are ground nesters. Now, I am when I say ground bees, I am not talking about... The, the ones that, you know, uh, build a hive in your ground, and they're actually wasps. They're not bees. And they come out and they sting you in the fall. You know, you run your lawnmower over them, and they all swarm out of there and sting you. Mm-hmm. That's not the same thing. Those are, those are a, a, a species of wasps. They are not a species of bee. And so the squash bees, which do dwell in little tunnels that they carve out of the ground, um, in many cases they actually live right in the ground next to the plants that they are pollinating. And so one of the best things that you can do to promote our native squash bees is you can switch to no-till methods in your garden. And that's rather than tilling up the garden every spring, you are uh, leaving the ground exposed and you're just adding maybe a a few inches of organic matter to it every year. And these ground-dwelling bees that live, and again, these guys are solitary. They don't live in a big colony. They live by themselves in these tunnels. And, And when you till the soil, you disturb those tunnels. And um, and you kill their their developing young, their pupa, which live in the ground, or their larvae, which live in the ground in those tunnels. So, um, it, squash farmers that switch to no, no-till, there's been a bunch of studies that have been done that say they have far better pollination rates. And I know here on the radio show that I do every week, we get a lot of questions from people in the summertime about their their squash and their zucchini, where they'll say, you know, oh, the squash, the, the, the stem end of the squash is nice and it's beautiful, but then the blossom end is all shriveled up and puny and it's misshapen. And, and what happened? Was it a frost or what, you know, was it a weather condition? I, and, I, and that is a sign of poor pollination because they're missing that squash bee to pollinate um, those squashes. And so that kind of puny flower end on any member of that squash family is indicative of poor pollination. So switching to no-till methods is a, is a big one for any of those species of native bees that dwell in the ground. Um, and, and that is, it's a major contributor. And then we, we look at something like the bumblebees, and, and the bumblebees are, um, they do form small colonies, and they are also um, ground nesters. Well, they will dig um, tunnels, a, a series of tunnels in the ground, and that's where they will, lay, the queen will lay her eggs, and they will have, the, the larva will develop in the ground, and then will go out and they will pollinate your crops. And again, any any place that you have in your yard and garden where you can leave you know, the soil undisturbed and you don't mulch over the top of it, that is going to be a place where some of these native ground-dwelling bees can nest. And many of those 4,000 species of native bees, by the way, do not sting. Many of them are very docile. And the only way they would ever sting you would be as if, you know, you would step on them or put your hand um, directly on them. Many of them are not actually capable of stinging. Um, So it's not something that you have to worry about like you would with a ground-dwelling wasp that lives in a big, massive colony. Um, And, again, Mm -hmm. these these guys are very, very docile. So that's one of the big – the squash bee is one of the big important ones for the summer crops. Yes. And so how do you then attract um, these – these bees. I mean, if you've got, I've got. Uh, we're in a brand new garden, um, and it's it's sort of 
got nothing there uh, beforehand. It was just native woodland. If I'm trying trying to pollinate my squash, is it going to find it? Because it might not have been there before. So how how is it going to find my, my little squash plants? Right. Well, you have to remember that the members of the squash family are natives of the New World. I mean, they're natives to Central and South and North America. So these bees are here and they are native to here. So... Um, so they'll be around, um, so to speak. And if your neighbors, uh, you know, grow squash and people at farmers have been growing members of this crop for, for many generations, they're going to be there and they are going to find your plants. But again, not just with the squash bees, but with all of these species of native bees, there are some steps that you can take to promote them. And again, leaving some bare ground where they can, is unmulched, where they can make their nesting sites there and leave it undisturbed, that's a really big important one. The other one is, again, increasing the amount of floral diversity in your yard and garden, planting lots of different types of, of flowering plants, as many natives as you possibly can. Um, and that's everything from trees to the understory to shrubs to perennials to annuals to ground covers. All layers of the landscape strata should have just as much diversity as possible in them to support as many pollinators as possible. And then also to recognize that about three-quarters of the native pollinators don't actually live in the ground. They are what we call tunnel dwellers, which means they live in in, um, empty tunnels. So uh, dead plant stems, or um, or tunnels in wood. So that's why sometimes you will see nesting blocks for something like the orchard mason bee where they'll sell a block of wood and it will have holes drilled into it and the orchard mason bee will, will build its nest inside of one of those tunnels. Or you will see now, um, I know like at the some of the big flower shows, they have people that are displaying bamboo stakes, and they'll be cut to a length or hollow stems of, say, monarda or brambles, and they'll be cut to a length of about um, 18 to 24 inches and bundled together um, and put in, let's say, a five-gallon bucket or just bundled together and wrapped with some twine and hung up. And all of those empty tubes and all those empty stems are little nesting cavities for all of these species of native bees. And I know here in my yard, um, in the front garden, we have a south-facing slope. And south-facing slopes are very important habitat for many of these nesting native bees, for the ground dwellers especially. They like that exposure of that south-facing slope. So my garden, uh, I let the plants stand through the whole winter. I let all my perennials stand Again, because we have all those empty stems, and I had a, um, a monarda plant up sort, sort of towards the top of that slope, and they had kind of fallen over through the winter, and I was watching them just last week, and I, and I was um, cleaning up some of the leaves out of that garden, and I was watching a little tiny um, digger bee go in and out. Uh, that Actually, it was a sweat bee, not a digger bee, excuse me. Sweat bee go in and out of um, one of those empty monarda stems, and I knew that she had something going on in there, uh, was going back and forth. And we had a, um, we have a porch swing on the back porch. It has a metal frame um, around it, and I was sitting on the porch swing last year. My son was playing in the yard, and I was watching a little um, leaf cutter bee, and it would fly down to my shade garden and cut a little a circular piece out of the edge of one of my epimedium leaves and then fly back to the porch swing and there was a little tiny hole in the metal frame of the porch swing and she would shove the little piece of leaf into the metal hole of the porch swing and she was building little cups 
out of leaves that she uses to lay an egg in each little cup. And oh, that's wow. where her she's making her brooding chamber inside of the hole, and then she sealed it over with mud. And it took about three days, and I would watch her fly in and out with little fly in with little pieces of of leaf, and she'd be in there for a while, and then she'd come back out and go get another one. Um, and it was really a neat process to watch. So they're out there if you know what to look for and how to pay attention to them. And and so those, those little eggs they germinate or, or whatever, and and they fly off. Yeah, so what it will do is it, she creates that brood chamber in there and then um, it packs it with a food, pollen and nectar for the developing young, and then the eggs hatch into larva, and they live inside of that little brood chamber that's made out of little pieces of leaves. And it's really cool if you can actually see one. They are literally little cups of made, that she makes and glues together out of leaves, and they're stacked into each other like nesting cups. It's really, really neat to see wow. into a little tube like that. And then the, the pupa or the, the larvae grow inside of there and then they pupate and then they hatch out into an adult and, and chew out through the seal and fly away. Wow. Yeah, so, so really neat. Neat. I, that must have been fun to watch. <laughs> it was. I remember the first time I dug up one of those little um, cups from a leafcutter bee, and, and I had no idea what it was. I was probably in my early 20s, and I was working in somebody's garden, and, and we were digging around, and we dug up this the brood chamber, and it was literally like these little cups of green, little green cups stacked on top of each other. And I was like, <laughs> what is this? And we actually took it to our local chapter of the Audubon Society because I knew the director, and I knew he would know what it was. And he's the one that identified it because that was before you could Google something, you know. <laughs> and, and, I, and I asked him, I said, what is this? And he said, oh, that's a leafcutter bee, and that's the brood chamber and i was wow. like oh my gosh it's really cool and what do i do with it now <laughs> i <accidentally laughs> dug it up so we buried it again in a little in a little uh, in a hole i don't know if it ended up they ended up living or not but it was uh, it was pretty cool to be able to see it yeah so so if somebody though has maybe they're in an apartment and, and has just got one tomato plant um how do they attract something maybe they're three floors up i mean is that are the are the uh, pollinators still going to find the the low tomato plant or the pepper plant or do, do we need to help that along well the thing is the pollinators are everywhere even on the third story balcony <laughs> they will find a way they follow a set of cues um, to find their nectar source so it could be a combination of visual cues like the fluorescent pattern of the leaves in combination with the scent of, of the nectar or in combination with signals perhaps from other pollinators so it depends on the species of bee and it depends on how they work um, but they will find it, um, and it certainly, again, would not, would not hurt to have other plants nearby, um, but, you know, they will find it. They will eventually find it, and a lot of garden crops are actually self-fertile, where the, 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 the plant actually fertilizes itself without even needing help. I shouldn't say a lot, but some garden plants are self-fertile, where they don't actually need the help of a pollinator. In the case of, of a... Um, uh, of a tomato, it's actually the, the vibration of the bee that makes the pollen move um, because you know most um, tomatoes are, are, are self-fertile and they'll fertilize themselves and that's why you can save seeds from year to year because they come pretty true to seed. So it's that vibration that's necessary. So if they're worried about that, you can actually go out with an electric toothbrush and put your bee outfit on and pretend you're a bee and use your electric toothbrush from flower to flower to vibrate that flower in order to knock the pollen um, 
onto the um, onto the uh, stigma and and have the fertilization take place. Or you could just get maybe a couple of little marigolds to stick around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or you know, and anything is, and anytime you do have you know grow plants in containers, you should definitely mix your um, vegetables with your flowers. Yeah, um, there's no reason not to. Oh, and and it just make, it does it make, makes the the deck or or whatever attractive. Uh, but you know, we need to take our final commercial break here. But come back, everyone, and listen to more about uh, Jessica's bug books and where you can find her this summer after these messages. When gardening is part of your life, it brings so much. Healthy eating, the freshest, most local produce, and playing in the dirt. At BonniePlants.com, you'll find all you need to succeed. When you grow Bonnie veggie and herb plants in beds or containers, you'll know where your food comes from. Homegrown veggies and herbs ready for cooking, eating, and enjoying. And you did it. So get growing with Bonnie Plants. Hi, I'm Paisley McDonald, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show, At Home with Paisley, every week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is Cheryl Linker, host of the Master Gardener Hour on America's Web Radio, Saturday morning at 11 o'clock. Join us as we keep things fun and interesting as we educate you in the world of master gardening. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. hope you're enjoying America's homegrown veggie show this morning. We have been talking about pollination with bug lady Jessica Wallace. And clearly, Jessica, there's a lot that gardeners can do to attract insects. So um, from your books on um, bugs and things like that, uh, can they all be purchased from Amazon and local bookstores? Absolutely, yes. I did um, I did uh, one, two, three books with um, St. Lynn's Press, and um, they are all available anywhere that you um, buy books. And then my most recent book is with uh, Timber Press, and that also is available Amazon, BarnesandNoble.com. Um, it's actually also available as a, an e-book on Kindle and Nook. Um, and uh, anywhere that you, you, if you go to your local bookseller and they don't have it in stock, they can order it because it's going through all of the uh, standard distribution channels. Yeah. Um, and what about maybe if somebody wanted a signed copy? Are they able to get one of those? Absolutely. You can do that through my website, which is just um, jessicawalliser.com. And you would just click on books, and there's um, what you do: send a check, and I'll send you the autographed uh, copy of the book. So it's pretty, pretty easy, pretty, pretty easy, old-fashioned way <laughs> to get a signed book. And also, um, I try to list um, any particular events that I'm doing. I go out and speak all over the place, and you're always welcome to come to one of those and, and pick up a signed copy of a book there as well. 
And so, so at most of your talks, you you actually have books with you that they they can purchase. Yes, absolutely. And I usually try to post um, a few weeks in advance of larger events on my Facebook page. So I welcome people to friend me on Facebook. It's just Jessica Walliser, and um, you can also access that access the Facebook page through my website, um, jessicawalliser.com. And then I try to list the events a few weeks in advance so that folks have time to sign up and things like that. And as you know, Kate, you know, February, March, April, and May are my busiest times. And then again, it picks up in September and October. Everybody's too busy in their own gardens in the summertime <laughs> to go and sit in a gardening workshop. Uh, but the spring and the fall are very busy times for lectures. Um, and so I try to list them as far in advance as possible on the Facebook page. And, and I know, know that you did uh, a great talk at uh, the, the Philadelphia Flower Show, which was, um, that, that was that was great. And I think that sort of audience where, where you can't show slides is, is rather difficult sometimes. So you've got all the images there on cards, which really did help. So people don't have to have a really formal um, presentation for you. Exactly, yeah. Not every venue um, is conducive to something like a PowerPoint, although I do love to have, you know, as I'm talking about a particular pollinator or a particular species of beneficial predatory insect, I, I like to have that visual to go with them. So, Kate, you might, might remember at the Philadelphia Flower Show when we were talking about ladybugs, and you, know, you talk about the diversity of ladybug species and that there's, you know, over 400 different types of ladybugs in North America. And, and you know, because when you say ladybug, people picture, you know, red with black polka dots on there. And then I show the picture, which has, um, you know, just four examples of what different ladybugs can look like. And it's pretty shocking to people. So the visuals are always a good thing to go along with it, but they aren't always necessary. And, and if somebody may, maybe wants to invite you to their um, function of some, is there a way that uh, they can contact you through your website? Yeah, there is. There's actually a contact page on the website and it gives uh, my email address and my phone number on there as well. So uh, I think that along with the rest of the world, I'm always easier to contact via email because um, <laughs> I can send a quick response from the, wherever I am, even if my kid is in the in the in the in the back seat and I'm sitting in a parking lot. I can I can reply real easily that way. I won't do it while I'm driving. I promise. But if I'm <laughs> sitting in the car somewhere still, I can reply real quickly um, to somebody. So that's usually the easiest way to get a hold of me. But um, you know, I do. It's one of my favorite things um, going out and talking to people and lecturing because it's really there's something special. Um, you know. I do the radio every week. I've been doing it for t- almost 10 years now. But there's really something special about being able to see somebody's face when you talk to them about, um, you know, the way that a, uh, a leaf cutter bee makes its brood chamber or the diversity of, of um, ladybug species or you talk to them about praying mantids and things like that and there's really something cool about seeing their face so it, my great, one of my greatest pleasures is going out and actually talking to groups in person And, and are all your talks on bugs or, or do you talk on other things as well? Well, again, this goes way back to the first segment when we talked about sort of my background in gardening is is plants. And so um, up until the past year or so, most of the lectures I gave were about plants, and they would be on things like, you know, building a shade garden or uh, organic vegetable gardening or transitioning to organic care or, or um, you know, any number of topics around, around flowers and around ornamentals and vegetable gardens. And it's really only in the past year or two 
that I've started to to talk more and more about the insect world um, and and its connection to plants, which I think is is a really critical thing that you can't just go out and talk about bugs. You also have to talk about how they relate to the gardener because otherwise, if it's not talking about how those insects directly influence that particular person, they kind of get lost in the haze. They're like, oh, she's talking about bugs again. But if I can tie it to something that's occurring in their garden that they might encounter out in their garden, then that adds a whole level of interest to it. Um, And so I try to like like to find those connections that interest people between the, the plant world and the insect world. And, and on your Facebook page, um, can people ask questions on, on there as, as well? Kind of, if they've got maybe a particular insect, uh, to, to help maybe get it, get it identified? Yeah, I do do a little bit of that, although I don't allow people to post on my timeline directly because I was getting some that were not appropriate. Oh. <laughs> so I have it set up for approval that I have to approve it first, but I'm, I do encourage questions and I encourage them especially through email uh, because I do write um, two weekly newspaper columns for the Pittsburgh Tribune Review and I'm always looking for good questions to publish in the paper that I can then answer. And so what I do is if it's a good question and and I decide to answer it in the newspaper column is then I will send that person a link to the column so that they can have their answer in writing as well. So I kind of prefer to get questions via um, email, but I will get people a lot of times that will send me pictures of insects and ask me um, you know, to identify them through Facebook, and that's fine too. It may or may not end up on my timeline, but I usually um, am able to respond to it and answer to it. And I have gotten and I have learned myself some really interesting things from pictures that people have sent me, you know, species that I had never seen before um, or that were really interesting to me or that I never even even thought um, uh, to talk to people about. Um, for example, last week, um, a, a local gardener had sent me a picture of um, a bumblebee beetle, which is a member, there's several, there's I think about 40 different species of them um, here uh, in North America, and they are a, a member of the scarab beetle family, which is the same beetle family as Japanese beetles um, and oriental beetles and chafers and things like that, And but they're fuzzy. And they have this downy yellow hair all over their whole bodies. And they're really interesting. And they will kind of, the males will um, will coagulate around a single female. And, and she saw this happening in her garden. And she got in a little bit of a panic and sent me some pictures of it and put them on her own Facebook page and tagged me. And I was able to look at them. And, and we identified them. We talked about them for a little while. And it was a really great learning experience for everybody and something that I had never thought uh, about showing people. Uh, and it was and it was a great opportunity for a little little sharing and learning experience there. And and are these new new bugs that you find um, are, are they moving north? Do you think these bugs? Well, there's it, it's just interesting, Kate, that you brought that up because we do know now for sure that min, the range of many insects are shifting. Um, and um, you know, for me and many entomologists, think it's a result of climate change, and um, and and it's going to be awfully interesting to see how all of this affects everything around them. So, for example, like the mountain pine beetle um, out west, and it's. Um, moving uh, further north and it's moving a higher to higher elevations in the mountains and it's killing the, the many species of pines and so the grizzly bears are affected because the pine nuts are one of their main food sources and so they don't they're missing this food source and they're coming into communities and digging in the trash piles because they don't have wild food available so as that insect range moves it's not just um, an effect on just the insect and the plant 
but it's a cascading effect on so many other things. Um, you know, mm. same with something like the hemlock woolly adelgid, which is, is a huge problem here in Pennsylvania. I mean, the hemlock is our state tree, and it's wiping out massive stands of hemlocks in the forest. Oh, wow. And you think, oh, well, it's a shame the hemlocks are gone. Well, hemlocks, you know, reside in a community with streams, and so all of these um, amphibians and fish species are being affected, and it's this uh, mm. collapse of these ecosystems oh. within the forest because of that insect. So well, yes. lots of cascading effects that we just yeah. don't know about yet. Yeah, well, well ho- hopefully this disastrous winter might have slowed them just a little bit. Um, we can but hope. Um, but, you know, we're, we're close to the, the end of the show, Jessica. Um, but if somebody maybe wanted to get a jump start on attracting pollinators this week, what would be the most important step, would you say, that they ought to take? Um, I would say go to the garden center and take a look around and see if they have a special section where they're selling native plants. And don't buy everything that's in flower now. Um, look for staggered bloom times. Look to um, increase different floral structures in the garden. And as you go about your spring planting, try to introduce as much diversity into your plantings as possible. That's everything from the bedding flowers to the vegetable garden to the shrub beds to the trees that you're choosing for your landscape. Look for the broadest reach of plants possible and as many native species as possible. And, and I think when, when people do get uh, natives, it, it really it, it helps the native population in, in so many different ways because I'm, I'm told that the natives actually have more nutrients in, in them and, and that helps to sustain uh, the, everything, pretty, pretty much all, all the, the local um, insects. Well, it's actually debatable as to whether or not they have more nutrients. There's, there's people on both sides of the fence and that's a whole other, <laughs> that's a whole other hour talk that you get into, Kate, but yeah. the thing that is that can't be denied is that our our local insects and our native pollinators have co-evolved with native plants for tens of thousands of years and there is absolutely no doubt um, that they they do an excellent job of supporting our native pollinators and that they require less care and less input on our our part so anytime you have a choice you really should choose a native. Um, at the very least, you should want to um, introduce as many as possible into the garden, even if it's a mixed with with um, exotic introductions, but that you, you do want to make sure that you have a good portion of natives in the landscape. Yes, and, uh, you know, I, I, I say, I, I've heard once or twice that they're, they're, they have a little bit more in, in them, but, but native azaleas, I mean, th- those are just beautiful in and of themselves. It's true, uh, they are, yes. yeah. Yeah, so that, that's on my, my wish list. <laughs> I, I, I just need to find a source for it right, right, right now. But, yeah, uh, that's often the hard part. Yes, it? yeah. But, you know, we're, we're right at the end of the show. Um, but I want to thank you for listening to America's Homegrown Veggie Show this morning. Thank you to Bonnie's for sponsoring the show. Uh, thank you, Jessica. It's uh, It's been a great talk, as you usual um and we'll be back next week with another show talking all about growing veggies have a good gardening week everyone and join me back here next saturday this is america's the best in chat radio designed just for you